Hi everyone, and welcome to the Ingle Nook. Thanks for joining me around the fire for some of history's greatest stories. As always, I'm your host, Logan East. In olden times, an Ingle Nook was a cozy alcove around a fireplace where people would gather in cold days to warm themselves. Sometimes they would think, sleep, or read quietly alone, while at others they would sit with friends or family to discuss the weather, daily chores, recent news, and of course, share stories. Today, few families gather around the fireplace with any regularity, and yet fewer homes have anything resembling an inglenook. This is a pity, and it is one reason why I am starting this inglenook, a place where we can all gather around the fire to hear some stories that will transport us away from the cares of daily life and perhaps teach us a thing or two. Using my knowledge and experience as a historian and teacher, I will be sharing heavily researched stories on a wide variety of topics from the past, ranging from murder mysteries and great works of engineering, to Viking sagas, frontier legends, and maybe a few ventures into philosophy and fiction. I hope that you enjoy these journeys as much as I do. So, with that said, let's settle in and get cozy. On today's episode, our inaugural episode, we begin part one of a three-part dive into the legendary life of H.H. Holmes, whom many have called America's first, and possibly worst, serial killer. Many of you, whether you be lovers of history or true crime, or just a horror enthusiast, have likely encountered some account of him as the Devil in the White City, the mustachioed proprietor of a hotel-turned-murder factory in Chicago during the 1890s. Most tellings portray Holmes as luring numerous young girls away from the 1893 World's Fair and into his Hotel of Horrors. After having entrapped them, sometimes seducing them with his charms, he would lead them down a labyrinth of secret passages and chambers before murdering them in any variety of lurid ways. Most versions place his victim count in the dozens, while others have estimated them up to 200 victims. Our goal in this series, however, is not to repeat decades of urban legend or to wallow in gory speculations, but to dig deep into Holmes' life and to separate fact from fiction. Part 1 of this series will present Holmes' appearance on the national scene, the initial investigation and discovery of his crimes, and his trial and execution from 1894 to 1896. The goal is to present his story as a highly informed person would have experienced its development in real time without the hindsight of present knowledge. It may not be the story you were expecting to hear about Holmes. Over the next few weeks, parts 2 and 3 will present the development of the Holmes legend, the more extreme accounts of his crimes, and finally a full account of his life as realistically as possible, distilled from the most credible sources on his real-life deeds and misdeeds. While my telling of his life draws from a variety of sources, the main source for my account and its perspective derived from Adam Selzer in his recent book on H.H. H. Holmes, which will be linked in the description below. I recommend that anyone serious about Holmes pick it up for the most thorough book on the subject. If you enjoy what we're doing here on The Angle Nook, please consider liking or leaving a review. Should you feel inclined, you can also support the show at patreon.com forward slash Nook, linked in the description below. I produce all parts of the show on my own, and your help is what will allow me to provide these stories into the future. But enough of all this introductory business. Let's get into the story. On September 3rd, 1894, in Philadelphia, Eugene Smith returned to the office of a man he knew as B.F. Perry, a patent broker, to continue discussing a patent for a new handsaw device that he had invented. Upon knocking and waiting, he determined that no one was home and left disappointed. Returning the next day, September 4th, and knocking, he again heard no response. This time, however, he found the door to be unlocked and stepped inside. Immediately, he was greeted by a foul odor coming from upstairs, where Smith had known Perry to create cleaning powders in a small chemist's lab. Upstairs, Smith was horrified to discover Perry's rotting corpse on the floor, blackened and charred from an apparent explosion. There was a shattered bottle of benzene on the workbench next to a tobacco pipe. He rushed down the street to fetch Dr. William Scott. Upon investigating, Scott was highly suspicious and believed foul play might be involved. The corpse was brought to the morgue where the resident physician, Dr. William K. Mattern, two Williams, and Dr. Scott conducted an autopsy. The two of them discovered a pair of swollen kidneys, the likely result of alcoholism, and a ruptured bladder that they ascribed to the apparent explosion. Most importantly, however, they detected that the lungs were saturated with chloroform, noticeable by smell alone, and that the stomach contained one ounce of liquid chloroform. The heart did not contain blood, indicating a rapid death. 
Obviously, the explosion was not the source of death. The glass of the benzene bottle was shattered inwardly, not outwardly, and the presence of chloroform in the lungs indicated the victim was still breathing when he was drugged. The chloroform in the stomach, however, had not produced any irritation to the stomach lining, suggesting the victim was deceased when the liquid entered his esophagus. Both doctors suspected foul play. Despite this evidence, the coroner's jury ruled it an accidental death from a chemical explosion. Still, the facts of the case were so curious that Perry's demise received some small coverage in national newspapers. Meanwhile, on September 8th, the Central Office of Fidelity Mutual, a life insurance company, received a telegram from their office in St. Louis, Missouri, that reported the deceased B.F. Perry in Philadelphia was now claimed by his dependents to be Benjamin F. Pitzel, a former lumber broker from Chicago who was insured by Fidelity for $10,000. News of the death was later seen by E.H. Cass, an employee in Fidelity Mutual's Chicago office. Cass, who cashed the premiums for Pitzel's policy, told the company president that a man named H.H. Holmes was the only known close associate of Pitzel's and that he should be contacted to learn more. Accordingly, Cass went to Holmes' listed address in Wilmette, an up-and-coming North Chicago suburb, and was greeted by Holmes' wife, Mrs. Murda Holmes, an attractive woman with dark hair. He might even have seen Holmes' young daughter, Lucy, playing in the drawing room. Murda said that she could not say where Holmes was at the moment, as Holmes, something of an entrepreneur, was always away on business and had been gone for some time. She directed Cass to Frank Blackman, a financial agent downtown. Blackman always had a forwarding address and acted as Holmes's point of contact. Blackman sent along Cass's message to Holmes at his most recent address, which requested his presence to help identify the body of Benjamin Pitzel in Philadelphia. On September 17th and 18th, Cass received two letters from Holmes, stating that he would head to Philadelphia as soon as his business in Baltimore was concluded. He said that he was surprised to hear of his friend's death and that he had not read anything in the papers to suggest anyone other than one Mr. Perry had been killed. He even presumed the death had occurred in Chicago in his first letter, or at least said that he did. On September 21st, Fidelity President L.G. Faust and his assistants O. LaForest Perry, LaForest is a fun name, were met by Pitzel's teenage daughter, Alice, and the new Pitzel family attorney, Jephtha Howe, at Fidelity's Philadelphia office. The two had come to represent the Pitzel family in the formal identification of the body. Faust informed the two that one of Pitzel's old friends, Mr. Holmes, would be meeting them shortly to assist. Once Holmes arrived, Howe and Holmes did not seem to know each other. Eugene Smith, the discoverer of the body, also joined them. Holmes was a 30-something man of average height and build. He wore a thick, well-trimmed mustache that obscured his mouth, but this was little different from most other men of the day. What distinguished him most were his blue-gray eyes that never seemed to look at someone directly in the face. One of them was just slightly cross-eyed. Alice and Holmes discussed the distinguishing features of Pitzel's body, with Holmes taking the lead. He mentioned a scar on Pitzel's leg and a large, warty growth on the back of Pitzel's neck. Alice somewhat lamely mentioned a bruised fingernail, likely feeling shy, anxious, and understandably depressed. The party agreed to go and view the body at the cemetery the next day. At the cemetery, the party, to, the party went to the shed where the exhumed corpse was again being examined by doctors William Scott and William Mattern. Alice, who had broken down in tears, was left outside while the men entered to find a blackened and badly decomposed corpse on the table. They examined the markings previously discussed, cutting a number of samples from the corpse, including the warty growth and bruised fingernail that Holmes had mentioned. Somberly, Holmes proclaimed that it was indeed Ben Pitzel. Legally, however, Alice had to identify the corpse. To spare her the horror, the teeth were exposed, and Holmes had her look through a hole in a piece of paper that only allowed her to see the teeth, and thus obscured the putrid corpse. Yes, she whimpered, those are Papa's teeth. Fidelity presented the trio with a check for $10,000 made payable to Carrie Pitzel, Benjamin's wife, or now widow, and Holmes made for St. Louis, where the rest of the Pitzel family was staying. In late September, W.E. Gary, an investigator for Fidelity Mutual, who was skeptical of the entire Pitzel case, was in St. Louis on unrelated business. 
By chance, he happened to read a detailed letter in the local newspaper by the semi-famous train robber Marion Hedgepeth, who was imprisoned in the St. Louis jail. The letter was highly detailed and claimed that one Mr. Howard, an apparent Holmes alias, had detailed his plans to Hedgepeth while the two were in prison together to commit insurance fraud with his friend Ben Pitzel. But, claimed Hedgepeth, the body now presented to authorities was actually that of a murdered Pitzel. Interestingly, Mr. Howard was also the alias used by Jesse James, another far more famous Missouri train robber. The letter also indicated that Jephthah Howe, the family's attorney, had been part of the scheme. Based on its details, Gary believed its claims on the spot and went to Howe's St. Louis office. Feigning ignorance, Gary asked Howe whether he'd made out well on the Pitzel case, whereupon Howe bragged that, I got two and a half thousand dollars, and if I had known it in the first place, I would have made it a third. This was all Gary needed to hear, and upon reporting to President Faust, he received permission to hire the Pinkerton Detective Agency to assist in locating Holmes and getting to the bottom of the matter. The Pinkerton detectives quickly uncovered a host of people with something to say about Holmes in Chicago. Holmes was involved in a bevy of property and financial disputes consisting of dozens of lawsuits. Many of these centered around a large block building on the corner of 63rd and Wallace Streets in the Inglewood neighborhood. The root of the trouble was that none of Holmes's properties were listed in his own name, making the collection of his numerous debts nearly impossible. These strings all led back to Frank Blackman on Dearborn Street, who in addition to being a frequent Holmes lender, would forward any mail addressed to him at the latest address, as has been mentioned by Murda Holmes. While this trickle of changing addresses did not permit the detectives to pinpoint Holmes in real time, it did give them leads and revealed that Holmes was moving from town to town, ping-ponging from Indianapolis to Cincinnati to Detroit, with later stints in Canada and even New England. While these movements were ostensibly for business, agents in each town would begin to piece together strange and conflicting reports of whom Holmes was traveling with, ranging from two to three children, a woman with a daughter and a baby, or one attractive blonde with arch, oddly large blue eyes. Argely, oddly large. Furthermore, it seemed that Holmes was employing a different name in each town he visited and at each of the several hotels he visited in each town. By late October, detectives were in Toronto, Canada. <laughs> Let me say that like a normal person, Toronto, Canada. But Holmes's address trail would soon lead them back into the States. In the final days of October and the first few of November, Holmes was staying in Ogdensburg, a small town on the St. Lawrence River on the New York side of the Canadian border. Here, the Pinkertons were finally in the same town as him, but did not move to intercept him, instead focusing on gathering information. They would have noticed a strange habit here. Holmes was commuting between Ogdensburg and Burlington, Vermont, no short distance. In Ogdensburg, he seemed to be staying with a plain woman, a baby, and a young girl. In Burlington, he was residing with the attractive blonde. The three other children no longer appeared to be with him. Then the Ogdensburg trio seemed to join him in Burlington, too. Suddenly, in the week of November, excuse me, in the second week of November, Holmes set out on the night of a blizzard to the small township of Gilmanton, New Hampshire. Again, not a short journey. Hot on his heels was Detective, or excuse me, was Pinkerton Detective Rowe, still keeping back and observing. Holmes arrived at an old farmhouse and was greeted with some commotion by the large family within and spent a few days in their company, strolling about the fields and making some visits in town. From locals, Rowe likely would have learned that Holmes was with the Mudgett family and that Holmes was nothing less than their long-lost son. The talk of the town was Holmes's apparent amnesia and his reunion with his formerly abandoned wife and young son. Then, as quickly as he'd arrived, Holmes set off for Boston and set up with the blonde again on November 13th. When detectives found that Holmes was making arrangement for trains heading south, they decided to go for an arrest. The trouble was securing a warrant from Boston police. All they really had was the word of a train robber and strange but legal movements. Because the coroner's jury had ruled Pitzel's death an accident, there was not enough evidence for suspected murder. But detectives had by now found that Holmes had spent time in Texas under the name of Mr. Pratt and was wanted by Fort Worth police for a few outstanding debts and for horse theft. On November 17th, as 
Holmes was taking an afternoon walk, three Boston inspectors and a Pinkerton agent confronted him and informed him that he was under arrest for horse theft in Fort Worth, rather fitting for an impersonator of Jesse James. After first attempting to talk his way out, Holmes surprisingly told the officers that he knew he wasn't wanted for theft and said that he'd been tipped off that he was wanted for a murder in Chicago. His belief was corrected when Fidelity Mutual agent Perry walked into the police station. Upon learning that he was wanted for insurance fraud, not murder, Holmes insisted that he did not want to go to Texas, but was happy to confess to insurance fraud and to be tried in Philadelphia. In his formal statement, Holmes said that he, Ben Pitzel, and Jephthah Howe had conspired to stage Pitzel's death with a corpse selected to closely mimic Pitzel. Using his medical training, Holmes had gone to medical school, he showed Pitzel how to stage the body, but remarked that Pitzel had done a poor job. Pitzel, he claimed, was now in South America with three of his children, though he had not yet been able to get Pitzel's wife Carrie and her two other to children, uh, two other children to see. Fidelity President Faust was skeptical and suspected that Pitzel had been murdered, but there was insufficient evidence and the insurance company opted only to sue for conspiracy to commit insurance fraud, which carried a much lighter sentence of two years in prison. The blonde woman, now revealed as Holmes's apparent wife, Georgiana Howard, was brought to the station to speak with Holmes, but matters were complicated. First, Georgiana knew Holmes as Henry Maysfield Howard. Second, Georgiana had no idea that Holmes was on the run or that he had been keeping members of the Pitzel family in rooms mere blocks from her own for nearly six weeks. She thought it had all been a series of business trips to sell copier machines. Third, it was now revealed that Holmes had been previously married to one Clara Lovering, whom he had just visited in Gilmanton. The two had never been divorced, though Holmes claimed to Georgie, Georgiana that he had believed her to be dead for years, which she believed. Still, newspapers took to referring to Georgiana by her maiden name of Yoke, though she still went by Howard. Holmes also told authorities where to find Carrie Pitzel and her two children, who were found in Burlington, Vermont, and brought into custody. Carrie was deeply confused. She had been told by Holmes that he was taking her to see her husband and children, though at each upcoming date he had postponed the planned meeting, claiming that the scene was not safe before moving her on to a new town. Because of the alleged fraud, they needed to remain in hiding. The next day, Holmes was making headlines as an inventive insurance fraudster. As yet, there was no strong accusations of murder, but journalists across the country soon set about finding out all they could on Holmes's past which would reveal more than anyone bargained for. Though the point was not yet heavily pressed, the possibility that Pitzel had been murdered was floated by authorities. Holmes vehemently denied the possibility, conceding that he was a scoundrel, but no murderer. Pitzel would be presumed dead if he could not be located, and that raised another question. If Pitzel was dead, what of his three children that Holmes claimed he had sent to him? In total, there were five Pitzel children. Desi and Baby Warden were the ones found with Carrie, but the three missing ones were Alice, who also went by Etta, who was aged 15, Nellie, aged 12, and young Howard, aged 8. Jep the Howe, who was arrested in St. Louis, though he claimed innocence and professed that he believed Pitzel was alive and well, he cooperated with authorities and was released on bail for the amount he'd received from the insurance fraud, for which he was quite lucky. Carrie was kept under arrest and made a confession. She admitted to knowing of the insurance fraud, but claimed Holmes had been leading her all over the country, keeping her in hiding, and separated from most of her children. She also now doubted that Ben was alive and feared for her three missing children. Authorities generally agreed that she had been duped and was much as a victim as Fidelity Mutual had been. The entire entourage was moved to Philadelphia to await trial, and lodgings were arranged for Georgiana and the two present Pitzel children. By now, more details were emerging about Holmes's life in Chicago and at Fort Worth. It became widely known that Holmes had a third wife, one Murda Holmes, along with an infant daughter, Lucy Holmes, living in a North Chicago suburb, though she knew nothing, absolutely nothing, about any of the events surrounding the Pitzel insurance case, nor anything about Holmes's other wives. She had been the one who had connected authorities to Frank Blackman, but that was about as much as she knew. More disturbingly, two sisters, Minnie and Nanny Williams, had been missing since the summer of the previous year, 1893. They had both been staying in the company of Holmes for several months before their disappearance. Holmes offered a bizarre explanation, though it lined up with the few facts available at the time. 
In Chicago, where he was living with his wife, Murda Holmes, excuse me, in Chicago, where he was living with his wife, Murda, Holmes met and fell in love with a young typewriter from Texas, Minnie Williams, whom he hired on to work at his various business operations and to be his lover. He bought her a house where she stayed, unbeknownst to Murda. Minnie had a sister, Nanny, who was brought to live with Minnie. Then, Holmes claimed, Minnie grew jealous of Nanny and, in a fit of wild rage, bashed Nanny's head in with a stool while Holmes was away. Shocked to discover this, Holmes helped to distraught Minnie, stow the corpse in a trunk, and sink it in Lake Michigan. As Minnie was also an heiress to about $40,000 worth of property in Fort Worth, Holmes took possession of it and gave her enough money from the property to escape to Europe, where she was safe and sound. In time, most people would simply assume that Holmes had murdered both sisters and forged Minnie's transfer of the Fort Worth property, which he had gotten a hold of either way. But journalists and investigators struggled to come up with concrete answers in Chicago. Some who knew Minnie believed the story to be possible that she was Holmes's partner in crime. Others claimed to have encountered her after the time of her apparent disappearance. Details from family and friends of Minnie down south indicated that in 1893, Minnie was excited that she was about to marry a man she named as Harry Gordon, and that Nanny had confirmed this fact to relatives in a letter. Nanny's belongings had turned up in an abandoned trunk, and almost everyone presumed that she had been murdered by someone. Gordon was presumed to be Holmes, which turned out to be true. Over time, Holmes would sometimes claim that both were alive and that both were dead, but his main claim, and the one he relied upon, was that Minnie Williams was definitely alive and hiding in Europe. At the same time, details were coming in from Holmes's family in New Hampshire. Holmes had been born Herman Webster Mudgett, the son of Levi and Theodate Mudgett. They described him as a shy, harmless boy in childhood, and they refused to believe him a murderer. Rather, they believed him to be insane and interpreted the deluge of fantastical stories about him to be proof of this fact. His legal wife, who went by her maiden name, Clara Lovering, was working as a dressmaker to support herself and their young son, Robert Mudgett. Holmes had told the Mudgetts and Clara that he had suffered a head injury in 1888 that had given him amnesia, which they believed. He explained that he was nursed in the hospital by Georgiana, with whom he fell in love and married, having forgotten all about his previous life. Only recently had he remembered his family and went to see them, much to their relief. Clara now learned more of Mudgett's life since she had last seen him as a young medical student in Michigan. She learned of Murda and his Chicago life. She learned of his many businesses that all seemed to end in fraud. And she now heard of murder. Clara, unlike Mr. and Mrs. Mudgett, was more inclined to believe the allegations. She left Holmes a decade ago for his abusive demeanor toward her in the first place. Having gotten used to life without him, it seems that she never saw him again. At any rate... Newspapers back in Chicago had begun plumbing the depths of Holmes's colorful business career. Holmes, as it happened, had been involved in numerous businesses of various descriptions, though it was hard to tell exactly what any of them did except for borrowing money and failing to repay creditors. Holmes's legion of creditors were led by one collection agent, George Chamberlain, from whom Holmes had escaped on prior occasions. Chamberlain and others pointed out the fact that Holmes's array of businesses and properties were held in the name of a hodgepodge of people, including many women like Minnie Williams, as well as some people who were perfect strangers to Holmes. The seemingly random casts of property holders had made it nearly impossible for creditors to collect debts from Holmes. But now they also posed a disturbing question. Where were these people? The Williams sisters were missing and suspected dead by many. Chamberlain plainly stated this his belief that they had been murdered by Holmes, along with one Kate Durkee, who had been friends with Holmes' Chicago wife, Murda. Newspapers picked up a flurry of stories about business associates of Holmes who had not been seen in some time and who were now presumed to have been murdered. Some even began to raise theories about Holmes' old dilapidated building in Inglewood. The jeweler there, Charles E. Davis, who ran a shop on the first floor of the three-story building, suggested digging up the basement to uncover the truth about the missing people. But, just as rumors were mounting, Kate Durkee appeared alive and well in Nebraska. Others, too, appeared, and people began to suspect that all the missing people, including the Pitzels, must also be alive and well. As winter approached, the home story began to die down. His second and third wives, Murder and Georgiana, both maintained belief that Holmes was innocent of murder, 
though conceded as he did that Holmes had committed many financial crimes. The one spot of drama that emerged in November of 1894 was the voluntary appearance of a young Philadelphia attorney, William Shoemaker, to represent Holmes. Shoemaker had claimed to be paid to defend Holmes by two mysterious men known only by the letters P, L, and H. While their identities were never ascertained, or their existence, Shoemaker's later performance makes it entirely possible that he made it all up for publicity. At any rate, Holmes intended to plead guilty for insurance fraud. But there was one major problem. Philadelphia authorities were not convinced by Holmes's claim that he had secured a cadaver in New York and shipped it to stand in for Pitzel. The task of breaking rigor mortis and then resetting it to a, resetting the body, I mean, to align with how the body was found should have been impossible. Additionally, Pitzel and his three outstanding children had yet to appear. Under these circumstances, Holmes opted to deliver a revised confession on December 27th. Holmes now told the police that he had planned the insurance fraud with some financial assistance from Minnie Williams to support Pitzel while he was in hiding and that he had gone to Philadelphia after leaving the St. Louis jail much as before. This time, however, he met a drunk and depressed Ben Pitzel. Pitzel supposedly suggested to Holmes that he might as well end it all which Holmes attempted to dissuade him from doing, the noble friend that he was. The next day, failing to find Pitzel at their usual meeting spots, he ventured to Pitzel's house only to find a suicide note and Pitzel's corpse reeking from chloroform. Holmes panicked. Suicide was not covered by the insurance policy, and so Holmes staged the body to look like an accidental death, just as it was found by Eugene Smith. His description lined up well with the established facts. Present, however, was Philadelphia detective Frank Geyer, and he was having none of it. If that is Pitzel's body, he asked, where are the children? Catching himself mid-sentence, Holmes replied that they were with Minnie Williams in London. Geyer remained unconvinced, but Holmes asserted that they would find evidence of Minnie and the three children's presence if they investigated in New York City. Though many, especially Geyer, did not believe Holmes, it was on this basis that he would first stand trial in 1895 for insurance fraud. Holmes appeared in court on May 27, 1895, alongside two new attorneys, brought in by the jittery and incompetent shoemaker. The younger of these two, Samuel Roden, would prove Holmes's most able defender. Holmes had gained a few pounds, but otherwise appeared calm and collected. The Commonwealth of Pennsylvania was represented by District Attorney George S. Graham, who was a forceful, experienced orator and was eager to put Holmes away. The trial was simple. Holmes pleaded guilty to a charge that, at maximum, bore a two-year sentence and would keep him from other charges waiting in Fort Worth. The judge accepted without dispute. Immediately after the trial, however, Holmes was taken to Graham's office and notified that the authorities believed Holmes had murdered Pitzel as well as the three missing children. The only way for Holmes to clear the suspicion would be to produce the children safe and sound. Now where are they? Graham pressed. Where can I find them? Why? Holmes responded with tears forming in his eyes. Should I kill innocent children? He asserted once again that they were with Minnie Williams in London and expressed his desire to reunite them with their mother. The authorities were deeply skeptical. Holmes could not provide one witness who could verify seeing Minnie Williams in any of the cities Holmes had visited during 1894. He insisted she could be reached by placing an encrypted message in national newspapers, which D.A. Graham did, but it received no replies. Scotland Yard, back in England, found no trace of Benny in London and determined that the address Holmes had provided did not exist. Still, it had been over six months since the children had last been seen, and it was worried that if Holmes had killed the children, there could be no remains to be found. Holmes began making headlines again, and Carrie Pitzel sat for a heart-wrenching interview in which she expressed her belief that Holmes was capable of any misdeed. Her fear for the fate of her children and her desire to find out what happened to them. At the same time, Detective Geyer received permission to launch a search for the three missing children, which he set about with gusto. Geyer spent time gathering all the necessary details of the Holmes case since the middle of the previous year. He had the names of hotels that Holmes had stayed at, some of his aliases, uh, pictures of the missing children, and an idea of which leads to pursue. 
which, while few expected him to succeed in finding the children, it was agreed by all that he was the man to try it. Geyer was an experienced detective who was methodical and respected in Philadelphia for his solving of a number of high-profile cases. Just before he left, Holmes had told him a tale about a man named Edward Hatch, who apparently accompanied Holmes and the children. Holmes said that he had left them in Hatch's care to take them to Minnie Williams, and that, if anything unfortunate had happened to them, it must have been the mysterious Hatch's doing. The story seemed both silly and convenient, but Geyer would be sure to do his due diligence. Geyer set out across the Midwest to the cities and hotels that Holmes had dragged his various companions through the prior fall. Hotel staff told stories of the children crying for their mother and being reprimanded by a stern Holmes. In another account, Holmes effectively talked of sending Howard Pitzel to a farm upstate if he did not behave, which suggested to Geyer that he planned on murdering the boy. He made the effort to visit Chicago as well. Though most people had no recollection of the children, several people disclosed additional shadows from Holmes's past upon his visiting Holmes's old block building on 63rd and Wallace. On the first floor, he found Dr. Robinson, who worked the building's drugstore, and on the second floor of apartments, he found Patrick Quinlan, who had been Holmes's longtime janitor and handyman. Robinson had a low opinion of Holmes as a swindler, while Quinlan frankly believed that Holmes had murdered Pitzel and the children. He revealed that back in the summer of 1893, the summer of the Chicago World's Fair, a fire had ravaged the third floor and that he suspected Holmes had lit the fire intentionally for insurance money, with no regard for the safety of the building's relatively few residents. According to Quinlan, Edward Hatch was a local bricklayer of good character and solid work ethic. With these few details, Geyer left town. Holmes, for his part, was maintaining an air of confidence to all he spoke to, from Georgiana to George Chamberlain. This facade, however, was about to crack. Geyer was heading northeast and stopped in Detroit. There, at one of the houses Holmes had rented, he discovered an empty grave dug in the backyard. Holmes, Geyer found, had been keeping the Pitzel children, Mrs. Pitzel, and Georgiana only a few blocks from one another. Finally, he pressed on over to the border to Toronto. There, he worked with local detectives and newspapers to post ads inquiring about a rental house that might have been abandoned abruptly last October. Holmes had departed Toronto suddenly, and there was no record of the Pitzel children after that point in the known record. After days of investigating random leads, Geyer was preparing to throw in the towel. Then, on July 12th, Thomas Rives, an elderly man, contacted a local newspaper about a house on St. Vincent Street. Rives had witnessed a man fitting Holmes's description moving into the house next, next to his with two girls in October. The mustachioed man had asked him for a shovel to dig a potato pit in the cellar. But the man returned the shovel the next day and left, never to be seen again. He did not see the girls with him, and no potato shipment ever arrived. On July 15th, Geyer traveled with Detective Cuddy of the Toronto Police to St. Vincent Street. There, the current tenant said that they had never used a cellar on account of a horrible odor that never seemed to go away. In addition, they found half-burnt scraps of girls' clothing hidden around the house. With equal parts trepidation and dread, Geyer and Cuddy dropped down into the dank, dirt-floored cellar. They had to stoop given the low ceiling and they were struck by a foul stench. It was not long before they found a patch of loose, disturbed soil and began to dig. At about three feet down, the smell had become unbearable, and they found what appeared to be a human bone. At this point, the two sent for an undertaker and proceeded to unearth the bodies. Though badly decomposed, the two corpses were unmistakably those of Alice and Nellie, naked and tossed on top of each other. Despite the horror and tragedy of the discovery, Geyer's persistence had succeeded in adding substance to the authorities' suspicions and transformed the Holmes case from one of fraud to one of murder. Well, Holmes reportedly said upon hearing the news, I guess they'll hang me for this. Nevertheless, Holmes's attorneys asserted that the evidence was circumstantial and put forward the claim that this had been Hatch's doing. Nevertheless, Carrie Pitzel, now broken, despondent, and in ill health, arrived in Toronto to confirm the identities of Alice and Nellie alongside Geyer. 
In a statement, she detailed the almost hypnotic sway Holmes had held over her while he led her about pretending to be looking for her husband in hiding. She was especially distraught to know that she had been only a few blocks away from her children for weeks, just before their deaths. Though the search for him would continue, not much hope was held for young Howard. Carrie's testimony made it clear that she believed Holmes was to be the sole murderer. With these revelations, the Holmes story was now breaking as a national murder mystery. It is at this juncture, in the summer of 1895, that the legend of H.H. Holmes as a murderer extraordinaire branches into two parts. The first part, which we will continue with in this first episode of the series, concentrates on the Pitzel murders, the related investigation, and Holmes's trial for murder in Philadelphia. The second part, which we will be exploring more fully in part two of this series in two weeks, deals with the story of the Devil in the White City, as Holmes is now well known, and encapsulates the investigation of Holmes's infamous Murder Castle on 63rd and Wallace Streets. For now, a brief description of these events will suffice. Holmes's newfound notoriety sparked an explosion of rumors in Chicago. Poorly served business associates spoke of his numerous financial schemes. One-time acquaintances told of near-miss encounters when they were sure Holmes had been about to murder them. And the public speculated about what secret deeds might have taken place inside of Holmes's strange Inglewood building. Former residents of the Holmes block spoke of odd passages and chambers in the building, as well as a number of young ladies whom Holmes brought into his service, only for them to disappear some short time later. Soon, strange disappearances throughout the city, and even in distant places Holmes might have visited, were suggested as having been additional Holmes victims. As part of a campaign to improve the image of the Chicago police force, the new chief of police, John J. Badenoch, launched a full-scale investigation of Holmes's affairs in Chicago. The Inglewood building soon became known as the Holmes Castle, and later yet, the Murder Castle, by the city's gossip-hungry newspapers. At the height of the summer's investigation, it seemed that Holmes might have been responsible for dozens of murders. By August, it was generally agreed that Holmes had killed at least nine people, including Ben Pitzel and three of his children. Eventually, however, the police department was forced to concede that, despite evidence of numerous financial swindles, there was no concrete evidence of murders in Chicago that would stand up in court. Next week, or in two weeks, we will return to these events and unpack them at length to explore the basis for Holmes' frequent identification as one of America's earliest and most prolific serial killers. For now, it is sufficient to note that the Chicago media circus during the summer of 1895 served to cast a long shadow over the Pitzel murder case, darken Holmes's general reputation, and further isolate him from what few friends and family who had originally refused to believe him capable of murder or gross infidelity. In the meantime, Detective Geyer had been hard at work trying to locate the remains of Howard Pitzel, the last of the missing Pitzel children. Guy had been working with a small team of investigators, including Inspector Gary of Fidelity Mutual, who had begun the original insurance investigation into Holmes. They had determined that Howard had gone missing sometime between Holmes' stay in Indianapolis and arrival in Detroit back in the fall of 1894, and highly suspected in the Indiana area. After a month's work and having exhausted all leads in Indianapolis proper, they turned their attention to the two remaining suburbs outside the city. In Irvington, just to the east of town, they encountered a real estate agent who directed them to one Dr. Thompson, who ran a drugstore in the area. Thompson recognized the photographs presented to him and identified a local house that Holmes had rented briefly. Holmes, he confirmed, was with a nine-year-old boy fitting Howard's description. Upon locating the house and peering inside, Geyer and Gary saw a battered old trunk fitting the description of the trunk Carrie Pitzel had said contained her children's clothing. Finding nothing but a few scraps of clothing in the house, the team first turned to the attached barn and began digging for a body, suspecting that Howard had been buried like his sisters in Toronto. As they were digging, an Indianapolis reporter strolled into the barn, whereupon Gary declared his confidence that at last they'd found the spot though he confessed his concern that Holmes might have burned the corpse, leaving no trace. While the detectives went to dinner for the night, 
Three neighborhood boys snuck into the house and began poking around. In the cellar, they found the flue connecting the stove to the room above. Investigating the opening, they discovered a trove of rubbish that contained buttons, clothing scraps, and, most importantly, charred bones. The startled youths contacted Dr. Barnhill, who'd been assisting the investigation. He promptly contacted Geyer and Gary and identified the remains of those of a young boy fitting Howard's description. The bones included a skull fragment and teeth, and the clothing remnants were also identified as Howard's. Later, vials of wolfsbane and cyanide were found on the property. Should Holmes somehow escape the impending Philadelphia trial for Ben Pizzle's murder, he might now also be tried in Toronto or Indiana. That night, Geyer would later remark, I enjoyed the best night's sleep I had had in two months. Holmes, for his part, was ready with an explanation, a quality that now seemed one of his defining features. He said that he had given Howard to the mysterious Hatch on October 9th of 1894 to bring to Minnie Williams, as Howard had a fondness for her and felt safer in her care. Holmes was in Chicago by the 11th, and there were only a few hours of time after Howard's disappearance for which he could not account, which had also been the case with Alice and Nellie. Holmes claimed that either Hatch had killed Howard for the money sewn into the boy's clothing to pay for his staying with Minnie, or that he had been killed on Minnie's orders to frame Holmes for murder. This, he suspected, was to gain revenge for his having left her to marry Georgiana. At one point, a telegram arrived in Philadelphia claiming to be for Minnie Williams, stating that she was alive and well. Though some members of the public were willing to entertain this theory, the authorities remained unconvinced. He undoubtedly is the greatest liar in America, fumed Geyer, besides the greatest murderer. Just as the Howard discovery was breaking in early October, Holmes's autobiography, Holmes's own story, was published. Holmes had written it from his prison cell, where he had been receiving a number of visitors curious to see the infamous inmate. The book, which he had been heavily, which had been heavily modified by the publisher, was a relatively bland account of Holmes's life that disappointed everyone. It said nothing of his first wife, Clara, or of his Chicago wife, Murda. It had little to say about the castle, and generally denied all allegations of murder with a variety of excuses. A few colorful episodes, likely written by the editor, detailed a wild 1887 journey to Grand Rapids, with a cadaver to set up an insurance fraud that ultimately fizzled, and Holmes's touching return to his family in Gilmanton. Again, without mentioning his wife, who was also in Gilmanton. Holmes would later insist that events like this 1887 trip were complete fabrications by the publisher. It seems that the book was primarily meant to raise money for Holmes's hopeful acquittal. He even attempted to blackmail individuals by threatening to include them in the story if they did not pay up. Shortly thereafter, Holmes sat for an interview with a female journalist from the Philadelphia Inquirer, in which he offered a general defense of himself, dismissing the Chicago... Excuse me dismissing the Chicago stories as ridiculous gossip, and offered a few details on his personal beliefs. He was a religious skeptic and did not have much concern for the supernatural. I do not believe in the least in the supernatural, he explained. I never saw a ghost in my life, and I don't believe anyone else ever saw one. I am not at all superstitious. Holmes appeared for his arraignment in late September looking far worse than during his previous appearance. His stately mustache was now joined by a scruffy beard, his clothes were disheveled, his eyes were sunken, and his complexion was more pallid than before. The stress was finally beginning to get to him. He pleaded not guilty, and despite the weak efforts of his inexperienced attorneys, a court date was set for October 28th. The trial was a national spectacle and attracted large crowds that were kept at bay by police. The small army of witnesses, who were all kept at the same hotel, filled the benches. Among them was a veiled Georgiana, who now went by her maiden name, Yoke, instead of the Holmes alias of Howard. The weight of evidence had broken her spirit and finally turned her against Holmes. She had been humiliated as a dupe and kept quiet, though her outspoken mother enjoyed chatting to reporters. Holmes seems to have sincerely loved Georgiana, despite his numerous crimes, and her change of heart would later reduce him to tears. On the first day of the trial it became clear that Holmes's two lawyers, Shoemaker and Roden, were poorly prepared. 
Shoemaker appeared on the verge of a nervous breakdown. They had had very little time to prepare, and their financial resources were dwarfed by the efforts launched by authorities and Fidelity Mutual. Holmes, against the warnings of the judge, dismissed them for the day to save them from harming their reputations and stood as his own defense for the day, an unusual and intriguing sight that added to the drama. The day was dominated by jury selection and District Attorney Graham's opening statement. Holmes performed ably in cross-examining the jurors by attempting to question their impartiality, though it would be difficult to find anyone with no opinion on the case. Graham delivered a fiery narrative of how he believed that Holmes had murdered Ben Pitzel for the insurance money, disguised it as an accident, then set about attempting to murder the entire Pitzel family to tie up loose ends. He highlighted the tragedy of how the hapless Carrie Pitzel was kept only blocks away from her children, all the while believing them to be hundreds of miles away in hiding. How the children's letters pleading for their mother to come soon were withheld by Holmes, and how he had entrapped them all, including Georgiana, in his web of deceit. It was only through the efforts of the intrepid investigators that Carrie and her two remaining children were saved and that Holmes had been kept from escaping to Europe. In one of the day's episodes, Holmes raised an objection to Graham's referring to Georgiana as Miss Yoke. When Holmes requested an interview with her, calling her his wife, Graham wryly retorted, Which wife? You know well, Holmes answered, whom I refer to. I don't know, said Graham. You have a wife in New Hampshire and one in Illinois, and then there is Miss Yoke. She won't see you. Nevertheless, Holmes pushed on and would see Georgiana early the next morning. He believed she was still on his side, but her faith was fading quickly. On the morning of day two, Holmes was still representing himself. His cross-examination of several witnesses, including Eugene Smith, stunned onlookers and attracted the attention of the city's prominent jurists. He revealed his medical training in attempting to prove that Ben Pitzel could have committed suicide, taking on doctors Madden and Scott, the two had performed the first autopsy. While cross-examining an expert who did not believe that Pitzel could have committed suicide by swallowing chloroform without passing out beforehand, Holmes attempted to explain a novel way of piping chloroform from a bottle with the use of a tube. Here, he might have overplayed his hand. As one juror later remarked, Holmes just seemed to know too much about the fatal uses of chloroform. Following the day's proceedings, Holmes continued to maintain a confident face to reporters, humoring them with jokes, even as they published speculations on his murderous habits. More importantly, he was able to convince Shoemaker and Rodin to return to the case as he himself was becoming fatigued. On day three, a chipper Holmes sat with renewed confidence, despite the large portrait of Ben Pitzel that Graham had positioned to loom over the court. The morning's witnesses were unremarkable, and Holmes casually read the paper in the prisoner's box. The lackadaisical mood, however, was quickly dispelled when Carrie and Desi Pitzel dramatically entered the courtroom. Carrie had suffered a nervous breakdown in the months since her rescue from Holmes and the destruction of her family. She was accompanied by a nurse and settled into the witness box as a broken shell of a woman, staring down upon the floor. Her voice was so low that her words were repeated by the court crier for the room to hear. Sitting for hours, she detailed the whole story from her perspective. She began with her hearing of the insurance and fraud scheme, excuse me, the insurance fraud scheme, which had moved forward against her wishes. She told of her separation from her children and of being shuttled about from city to city, suspended in the cruel deception that her husband would be there to meet her in the next town. Testifying through the tears, she confirmed the handwriting of her children's letters that she never received. When she explained, at Graham's prompting, that the only time she had seen her children since their original separation by Holmes was in the morgue, many in the audience and jury wept. With Carrie's testimony, Graham's case that Holmes had murdered Ben Pitzel and was isolating his family to murder them piecemeal to prevent any possible knowledge of the original crime was given devastating force. Holmes's lawyers had little to say in response, as any attempt to grill the witness would come off as heartless and desperate. It was after the third day's events that much of the original bravado of Holmes's defense began to falter. Day four of the trial was Halloween. The prosecution was determined to build the day around their next star witness, Georgiana, 
This stroke would require some preliminary witnesses to establish Holmes' relationship with murder. Pennsylvania law prohibited a wife or husband from testifying against their own spouse. The questionable legality of Holmes' three possible marriages, to say nothing of his dubious relationship with Minnie Williams, prompted the judge to allow Georgiana to stand as a witness, but with a qualifier the jurors should ignore her testimony if they believed her marriage to Holmes to be legitimate. Georgiana arrived in court alongside her mother and a nurse looking despondent though news reporters also emphasized her beautiful face, large blue eyes, and golden hair. This was pretty normal of media at the time. Women are usually described using their either physical beauty or their homeliness more than anything else. If they're pretty, usually that's an indication that people would find them to be reliable witnesses. It's just kind of a weird quirk of the time. Uh, Given that she appeared as Georgiana Yoke, not Howard, one might presume that they viewed her as Holmes's deluded victim, rather than his loving wife. Upon hearing her identi- uh, excuse me, upon hearing her identify herself this way as Miss Yoke, Holmes broke down in tears. This display was his first public emotional breakdown and it made an impression on all present. Under examination from the prosecution, Georgiana detailed events since her 1894 marriage to Holmes, how he had explained his use of aliases for the, his business needs, how he had led her across the Midwest and to Philadelphia. Canada and New England, how he had showered her with gifts and explained his long absences as part of running his copier business. Appearing as she did in her broken state, hers was a pathetic and heart-wrenching story. Holmes wept the entire time. Teary-eyed, Holmes rose to cross-examine her himself. He concentrated on establishing his appearance around the time of Pitzel's death and his kind treatment of Georgiana, which she generally acknowledged despite his obvious deceit. Worn out, he retired early and court adjourned for lunch. The defense rallied somewhat in the afternoon when Holmes's lawyers managed to exclude further evidence concerning the deaths of the Pitzel children as outside of Philadelphia's jurisdiction. Graham had hoped to pile on this evidence to secure a conviction, but now the weight of only the Ben Pitzel case would have to do the job. Should Holmes be acquitted, however, he could still stand trial in Ontario or Indiana. Nevertheless, this decision effectively wound down the prosecution's case. In his evening statement to the newspapers, Holmes attempted to frame himself as the victim of overzealous insurance companies and a runaway rumor mill. This image was given some support by the more outrageous stories of Holmes coming out of Chicago, but it was hard to deny the damning circumstances of the Pitzel case or how desperate the Hatch explanation seemed. It was the defense's turn to call witnesses on the fifth day of the trial, and they brought back many who had been called by the prosecution. Most notable of these were Carrie Pitzel and Georgiana Yoke. Still, these interviews were lackluster. Holmes's lawyer, Sam Roden, appeared to imply that Carrie had been a willing accomplice in Holmes's scheme and moved about freely. While this was perhaps his only real option to weaken the prosecution, It seemed cruel and grossly insensitive. Even the judge joked about the absurdity of Carrie as a criminal mastermind. She suffered another nervous breakdown upon leaving court. Georgiana's interview was underwhelming. The defense hoped to establish that, so far as Georgiana could verify, the story about Holmes faking amnesia and falling in love with her as his nurse might not be true. Finally, the defense concluded their case and asserted their confidence that Holmes would be acquitted on insufficient evidence. Though this confidence might seem ridiculous considering all the weight of the evidence we have today, many believed at the time that the defense had played things reasonably well and that, with focus only on the case of Ben Pitzel, there really was only circumstantial evidence tying Holmes to his death. The defense's best argument was that there was reasonable doubt and that suicide was at least plausible. One must imagine, however, that the jurors had the fate of the Pitzel children in their minds, even if they were not officially considered in the case. The sixth and final day of the trial, November 2nd, was devoted to closing statements and jury deliberation. Given that one of Holmes's lawyers, William Shoemaker, had passed out in a local drugstore, only two speeches would be given, one by Roden and the other by Graham. Graham, going first, spoke for hours and highlighted the the host of lies that characterized all of Holmes' actions. 
showing that his explanations for Pitzel's whereabouts and, later, death consistently changed. Holmes was untrustworthy, had ruined many lives with his deceit and greed, and had been willing to destroy an entire family to get his way. Roden, for his part, stuck to the simple argument that the prosecution had not sufficiently proven that a murder, not a suicide, had taken place, nor had it proved that, if a murder occurred, Holmes had committed it. The judge gave the jurors their instructions, remarking that, if it was true, the story of Carrie Pitzel being led about on a wild goose chase for her dead husband was one of the wild stories to be heard in court of law, and that Holmes, Holmes's power over the minds of others were astounding. He also instructed them that, while circumstantial evidence was not certain evidence, where there is smoke, there is often fire. The jury took longer than expected to reach a verdict, and many expected that it would end in a mistrial. Later, it would be revealed the jurors had reached a decision on the first vote, but remained in the chamber to enjoy a free dinner. The verdict was unanimous. Guilty. Though Holmes's lawyers requested a new trial for November, which they were granted, Holmes, for his part, returned to his cell in Moyamensing Prison and slept soundly. Perhaps he was relieved that the jig was finally up. In the days following the trial, public opinion, formed in a large part by the yellow press of the day, was settling on an image of Holmes as a mastermind criminal who had conducted fraud and murder on an industrial scale back in Chicago. Holmes, for now, remained adamant in his innocence and stuck to the story that the children had been killed by the conspiracy between Minnie Williams and Edward Hatch to gain revenge on himself. His best defense leaned into this new reputation. I am said to be a reasonably intelligent man, he argued. Could I, with my knowledge of the world, have expected that more than a few months would elapse before these remains would be found? And, with my recklessness in registering at all hotels in my own handwriting, and in many other ways bringing the matter home at once? The argument was a fair one, though in hindsight it is also a stinging self-critique. Regardless, Holmes's incompetent lawyer, Shoemaker, fell into a trap set by Graham and Geyer. He paid a woman to sign an affidavit regarding Ben Pitzel's state of mind, but the woman was working in secret for the prosecution. When she testified that he had paid her to sign it without ever showing her its contents, Shoemaker was sunk. He was fined, disbarred, and disgraced. The Holmes case lost what remaining credibility it had and entered its sentencing hearing on a weak footing. At sentencing in late November, Holmes and Roden were unable to offer any new evidence, and Holmes was promptly sentenced to death by hanging. Though Holmes would appeal to the state Supreme Court, the odds were not good. He and his few supporters kept up an effort to find witnesses that could complicate the story, but none emerged. On March 4, 1896, Samuel Roden came to visit Holmes in prison with the news. The state Supreme Court had upheld the sentence. The governor set the date for May 7th. Holmes replied calmly that he was prepared to die. Following his conviction, various newspapers had offered Holmes thousands of dollars for a written confession with exclusive publication rights. Holmes was evidently interested in such a deal so as to provide some money for his son after his execution. One wonders as well if Holmes, realizing the end was near, decided to secure his lasting fame, or infamy, rather than to go down as a failed insurance fraudster. It seems that joint publication rights were finally secured by the local Philadelphia Inquirer and William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal, which would syndicate the confession across the country. The Philadelphia North American, another newspaper, caught snippets of his confession and wrote their own counterfeit version that contains the infamous line, I was born with a devil in me and goes on to say that Holmes believed that Satan had been with him since his birth, and that, as he committed crimes, his own physical appearance transformed into a devilish one. This confession would go on to be the source for a number of the most famous Holmes quotes wrongly ascribed to him in later years. Holmes would include a letter in the two authoritative papers stating that this confession and others like it were false. Holmes's real confession is much more poorly written. It rambles in locomotive-length run-ons. Furthermore, once past his introduction, in which he describes his apparent physical deformation since landing in prison, that part of the story deformation was accurate, just not this lifelong satanic transformation, 
he proceeds to launch into a confession of 27 murders. The confession is riddled with blatant falsehoods. For example, he now claimed that the 1887 journey to Grand Rapids from his doctored autobiography was true and that the body was that of his old medical school classmate, one Mr. Leacock, whom he claimed to have murdered, which was demonstrably false. Leacock had died years before, far away from Holmes and by natural causes. It seems most likely that Holmes, in his bid for fame, was admitting to as many murders as humanly possible. That was more or less Murda's opinion in Chicago, though she remained hopeful that, while Holmes was a financial scoundrel, he was no murderer. If anything, she felt, like Holmes's parents, that such a confession was only proof that Holmes was mentally ill. Nevertheless, the confession would further stoke the growing Holmes legend, with papers writing of Holmes's evil eye and the Holmes curse that would apparently claim the lives and careers of people who he had crossed paths with. Most recently, Dr. Mattern, who'd originally performed the Pitzel autopsy, died of nephritis contracted from an open finger wound during an autopsy. Uh, kind of interestingly, he and Adam Selzer takes note of this, Dr. Mattern uh, had a habit of removing his gloves during autopsy because they were cumbersome and hot, and he did that during the Pitzel autopsy too, and unfortunately it, it eventually cost his life. In person, Holmes still maintained that Pitzel had died of suicide, explaining of his confession that the papers wanted a sensational story, and I gave it to them. That being said, he admitted to at least killing Howard, but insisted that he'd been assisted in the task. He told Geyer that he had indeed killed Allison Nelly, but that he had not done so alone. In his final days, Holmes rarely recounted events the same exact way twice. Most likely, this vacillation was intended to gain time by prompting an extended investigation, but it was all for nothing. In his final days, stuck in his cell at Moyamensing Prison, Holmes took an interest in Christianity, speaking frequently with Catholic priests, Fathers Daly, and McPake. Holmes professed faith in the Almighty and expressed hope for forgiveness, though he never really confessed to the charges laid against him. In an odd twist, he denied ever having intentionally murdered anyone, but did confess to the unintentional killings of his two previous secretaries, Julia Connor and Emmeline Segrand, whom we shall cover in the next two episodes, while conducting immoral operations. By this, he presumably meant abortions. On his final night, May 6th, he was visited in his cell by an odd assembly, including two of his lawyers, his priests, a doctor, Detective Geyer, and George Chamberlain, the collection agent who had pursued him from his Chicago days and who now held an odd, bitter respect for the convict. Holmes was given to bouts of tears, suddenly assertions, sudden assertions of innocence, followed by expressions of sorrow for his crimes. Chamberlain, for his part, believed that Holmes shed only crocodile tears. The next morning, the day of the execution, a scaffold stood in the main prison hallway, which was surrounded on either side by several stories of cells that lined the walls. Holmes wrote letters to his family and had a hearty breakfast while ticket-holding spectators were allowed into the prison. Geyer and Fidelity Mutual President Faust were present. Holmes was escorted from his cell. Among his small, excuse me, among his small death party were Fathers Daly and McPake, as well as his closest lawyer, Sam Roden. He'd shaved his prison beard and wore only his infamous mustache. In his hands, he bore a crucifix. Mounting the scaffold, he faced the crowd and was permitted a few last words. He opted to make clear his stances to his guilt. His final account was that he was innocent of all murder and only guilty in the criminal operations on Mrs. Connor and Segrand that led to their deaths. Turning to Rodin, he said, Goodbye, Sam. You have done all you could. Following a brief prayer with the priests, Holmes was fitted with a standard black hood and the rope was placed around his neck. From beneath this macabre guise came Holmes's last words. Goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. With that, the executioner gave the signal and Holmes was dropped five feet through the trap door. The death was not pretty. Holmes writhed for about a minute, spinning around and flailing his legs to and fro as his hands opened and closed. It left a lurid impression on the audience. When the body was at last taken down, doctors determined that his neck had snapped and that the execution had gone as planned. 
His facial appearance, while unsettling, was typical for such situations. Holmes had forbidden an autopsy, and to prevent tamperings by grave diggers, his body was placed in a pine box filled with cement. A few days later, Holmes was buried in Holy Cross Cemetery in a ceremony attended by Rodin and Father McBake. Despite efforts to conceal the operation, a crowd of roughly 100 onlookers arrived. None of Holmes's family was present. His coffin, marked with the names H. H. Holmes and Herman W. Mudgett, was lowered into the unusually deep 10-foot grave and then buried under more cement. Thus, with the drying of the cement and the dwindling of the crowd, came the end of the flesh and blood H. H. Holmes. The myth of Holmes, the murderer, however, had only just begun. Two weeks from now, in part two, we will explore the beginnings of the Holmes as serial killer legend, its evolution, and the mystique surrounding the so-called murder castle of 63rd and Wallace. If you've enjoyed this first episode of The Angle Nook, be sure to like, favorite, or leave a review. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing here, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash Inglenook for only $1 a month. With time, I hope to provide patrons with extra episodes, show notes, and more. For now, thanks for stopping by. We hope to have you around again real soon.